Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Marcus, and uh, I know you've been sitting in uh, sessions all day listening to people like me talk. Um, and I've got to say, uh, I, I feel at home a little bit. One, because I'm, I'm from uh, the Twin Cities area originally. Um, and two, at, at my church, no matter what, no matter how full the sanctuary is, the front row is always empty. And so thank you uh, for once again just leaving, leaving that empty. It makes me feel far more comfortable. Um, like Tanner said, my name is, is Marcus. I'm a pastor in Seattle, Washington, uh, of a church called Lamb of God Lutheran. You guys from Seattle? Oh, Blaine. All right. Excellent. Washingtonians. Good. Um, Spokane. All right. We've got a little bit of Washington in the house, and, and my uh, youth are actually here as well. Um, and I live there in Seattle with uh, my wonderful wife, uh, Vanessa. Uh, that is her on my right in this photo. It's, it's a little blurry. Um, she is incredible. Uh, I do not deserve her, and uh, she does not deserve me. Um, and, and I'm so thankful for, for her. Um, and we have two kids. They're there. Um, they're also uh, right here. Um, our daughter, Della, uh, who's probably eating chocolate at 8 in the morning, um, she is 3, but she'll tell you very quickly she's almost 4 because her birthday is October 16th. Um, and uh, she is uh, wild, crazy. Uh, we love her. Uh, her personality is spicy. That's, what we, uh, that's how we describe her. And then there's her, her little brother, uh, our son Jude. And Jude turns one in, in, a, in actually like a week and a half, which is, is crazy. Um, and, I, and I bring these two up because um, actually it was uh, about a year ago, uh, a little over a year ago, as we were expecting um, our son Jude to be born, um, I grew a mustache. Um, like you heard that right. I, I grew a mustache. And, and you're maybe looking, you're like, there's no way. Like, he looks like he's 12. Um, but I, I, I actually, I brought, I brought proof. There it is. Um, that that was, was my mustache. And, and there it is again uh, with my son uh, sleeping on me. Uh, there's one more uh, with, with both kids. But I, I maybe should have like, made it clear this session is just 45 minutes of me showing pictures of my mustache. Um, no, I, I, I kid. Um, now, I, I need to, to tell, there's, there's this great backstory uh, to, to why I, I chose to grow a mustache. Um, and, and, and it kind of all started with, I was, I was back in Denver, Colorado, where I had done my, my vicarage uh, at Bethlehem Lutheran. And, and I was there uh, um, officiating a wedding for a couple that I got to know while I was a vicar. And, uh, and this young man, he had reached out to me and, and, and he said, hey, uh, Pastor Marcus, will you uh, do my, my premarital counseling and, and my wedding? And, and it was a, a huge honor. It, it was super awesome. Um, and, and while I was back for, for the wedding, I hung out with uh, one of my best friends who, who lives there in Denver. Um, and, and he had just uh, been traveling the, the world for the year prior to that. And, and during that time, he had cultivated this really incredible handlebar mustache. And, and I looked with just so much jealousy at, at his mustache. Uh, and so I, I thought not only was it humorous, but he just looked like this man of incredible sophistication. And I, so, so I decided to follow suit. Um, and, and I thought, you know, at first it sort of started out as, as humorous. Um, it, it started out with me thinking, oh, what a gift it will be to my son uh, when he is a teenager and him and all of his friends can look back at photos of his old man having a mustache when he was born. I was like, well, how, man, what a, what a great thing I can give to him. 
But, but weirdly, it got like surprisingly good feedback. Uh, like these old ladies from my church, grandmas would be like, oh, you look so handsome with that mustache. And, and so I, I, I kept it for, for a while, at least. But, but I bring up, up the mustache uh, really because that mustache was, was about a lot more uh, than a big joke for me. And, and that kind of starts uh, three years prior to that birth of, of the mustache. See, three years prior to that, I had just started uh, my first call into ministry. Um, I was called at, at, toward the end of seminary to Lamb of God in, in Seattle, and uh, I was super excited. And, and it was really sort of the jackpot for me in terms of my first call into ministry. Uh, I had said I wanted to be on, on the West Coast, check. Um, I had said that uh, I wanted to be in an urban area, check. Um, and I said that I wanted to be in, in an area that was uh, mostly unchurched, check. Um, and so I, I was super excited to, to get started. And, and, I, and so I was thinking about all of these things that, that were just, it was kind of my dream job. You know, I'm, I'm there, I'm in Seattle, which is this incredibly beautiful city, if you've ever been there, nestled between two mountain ranges. You've got the Puget Sound. You've got Lake Washington. You have more coffee than anyone could ever drink in a lifetime. I was so excited to start ministry. And I remember the, the very first day, I got into my office, and I sat down at, at my desk And I thought to myself, I have no idea what I'm doing. I, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. I, I, I'm here, I'm, I'm in this incredible city, and, and now I'm, I'm actually like, this is real. I, I'm supposed to, to lead this church. I, I'm supposed to help, help them figure out what it means to follow Jesus in, in this world where, where most of the people around us in that city don't do so. I don't know what I'm doing. And I had just spent the previous eight straight years studying for, for this very moment, and I suddenly felt clueless. Now, I could do, like, some of the basics as a fairly competent preacher. You know, I could do visits and, and maybe feign insight into what it meant for us to, to be the church in an unchristian context. But I honestly was terrified. And for the first three years of my ministry, I honestly tell you, I felt like I spent all of my time hiding in my office, hoping that no one would find out that I was just an absolute fraud. And so there I was, now doing the thing that I thought I had wanted to do, feeling as if I had no idea how to do it. And, and to top it all off, we were then expecting our second child. My wife was leaving her job to stay at home with our two kids, making me then the sole source of income in a city with constantly rising costs of living. And so what was I going to do about it? How, how was I going to, to press forward, to, to figure out, to find a solution to my problem? How was I going to figure out, okay, how do I 
learn what it means to be a better leader? How do I learn to, to lead this church? How do I learn to be a faithful, mature man of God when most of the time I feel terrified and immature and like no one takes me seriously? I, I like to think that I did what any sort of rational, well-adjusted 29-year-old would do. I grew a mustache. Because I figured, you know what, if I feel immature, if maybe I look immature, and if I feel like no one takes me seriously, well, maybe I can look a little bit older. Maybe I can sort of act as if I'm a little bit older. I'll pretend I have it all together. I'll pretend that I know what I'm doing. When on the inside, I was terrified. You know, that, that's actually kind of the way the entire Christian story begins. Uh, let me explain for a moment. You may remember uh, from Sunday school, from catechism class, the way the scriptures begin. Begins in Genesis chapter 1 with God creating the heavens and the earth. And what we see is sort of God fashioning this home for his creatures. You see this picture where God creates and then, and then he fills his creation. So he creates light and then he creates the, the sea and the sky, and then he creates the land and, and the vegetation. And then the next three days, he's, he's creating the, the sun, the moon, and the stars to, to fill the lights of the sky. And then he's creating sea animals, and he's creating birds to fill the sea and the sky. And then he's creating land animals and, and humans. It's really this incredible, incredibly beautiful picture of God providing for his creatures before they even exist. And then we get to the way it discusses humanity in those first two chapters. At the very end of chapter one, we have these words. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image. We get this picture that humanity is, is, is connected to the creation, yet also distinct from it. And humanity is, we are connected to the earth. We are actually created from the earth is what we see in chapter 2 where we see God fashioning Adam out of the dust and then breathing the breath of life into him and then creating Eve as his perfect companion from his own rib. Humanity is a part of creation, yet it is special. It is distinct in all of creation. And then we get this really weird statement at the end of chapter 2 in Genesis. I don't know if you've ever, ever read this or, or, or stopped to think about it. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's kind of a weird detail, isn't it? Like, like why is it relevant information that Adam and Eve live in a nudist colony? Like, why do we need to know that? Is that really pertinent information to the story? By the way, speaking of nudity, my daughter is a big Daniel Tiger fan, and someone needs to explain to me why Daniel Tiger and his dad don't wear pants, but his mom does. It makes no sense. <laughs> but you see, the point here is not about what Adam and Eve were or were not wearing. The point here is the second part. The man and his wife, Adam and Eve, they were both naked and they were not ashamed. 
They had nothing to hide. They were completely open with God and with one another and the entire world around them. They had nothing to hide. Nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing to cover up. Nothing that they felt like they needed to keep from the rest of the world. That's what it means when the scriptures said that they were naked and they were not ashamed. They had nothing to hide. Nothing to cover up. They were completely seen, completely known, and nothing to fear. But you and I both know that the things don't stay this way for very long. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took it and she ate. She ate of its fruit. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. There's a lot that that could be said about, about these words. In fact, many, many smart people have written volumes on just these short, this short, short section of scripture. And I'm going to leave most of that, that for, for people much smarter than myself. But what I'm always struck by here in this story is the first thing that happens when Adam and Eve take of the fruit of the tree, when they rebel against the command God had given them. It says that the eyes of both, they were opened, and suddenly they knew they were naked. Suddenly they feel like they have something they need to hide. And so they begin to to sew fig leaves together. They run from the presence of God and they hide. Because for the first time in their lives, they're afraid. For the first time in their lives, they're ashamed. They feel as if they have something to hide, something that the world around them cannot see, something that God cannot see. They're afraid. 
And so they run, they hide, they cover themselves up. They begin to think, what if someone finds out? Well, what if I'm not enough? Have you ever felt that way before? Have you ever felt like there was something about yourself that you needed to hide? Felt like there was something about you that if the world around you would see, that they would reject you, that they would ridicule you and mock you for. And if you felt that way, which you, you probably have, how did you respond? My guess is you probably did something very similar to what Adam and Eve did, is you tried to cover yourself up, you tried to hide. You, you took and found something to use as a fig leaf to, to cover yourself up and hide behind so that the world around you wouldn't see that part of you and reject you. Because we all do it, don't we? You do it. I do it. Your parents do it. Your favorite celebrity does it. Let me tell you, if someone says that they don't do it, you can look that person square in the face and you can say, you are a liar. Because we all do it, all of the time. We hide the parts of ourselves that we're afraid the world will reject. We hide the things that we've done that we're ashamed of in fear that if someone found out, we'd be mocked and ridiculed And so we cover ourselves up. And so we do things to hide. Like, for example, when we maybe see a kid getting picked on in school, rather than maybe stepping to the defense of that person, rather than standing up for them, we join in. We join in because we wouldn't want to be rejected along with that person. And heck, if I can maybe make a few kids laugh with what I say about this person, well, hey, that's better for me. They'll accept me. They'll like me. They'll think I'm cool. They'll think I'm funny. And then I can do a better job of hiding those things about myself that I'm not proud of, those things about myself that I'm ashamed of. Or, or we spend inordinate amounts of time worrying and fretting over our appearance. We're constantly concerned about wearing the right clothes, the right shoes, having the right hairstyle, the right makeup, the right this, the right that. And we think things like, you know, maybe if I was a little bit thinner, maybe not quite as thin as that scrawny bag of bones up front right now, but if I was a little bit thinner, people would accept me. If I was a little bit more muscular, people wouldn't make so much fun of me. If I was a little bit better looking, a little bit this, a little bit that, then I wouldn't be rejected. Or, or maybe for you, you feel as if you are just past the point of acceptance. That there's been something in your life that you're ashamed of, something in your life that you've been mocked and ridiculed for, and it's just out in the open. 
But just because those things have been revealed, it doesn't mean the hiding stops. We like to hide how bad the, the ridicule hurts, how lonely we feel. By doing things like self-medicating, self-medicate with self-harm, with substances, whatever it is. All to hide just how bad it hurts. All to hide the very real scars that are with us. What's the way that you hide the things that you've done? You see, here's the thing, is, is most, of what we, most of us, what we really long for, what we desire, is, is connection. We, we desire to be connected with other people, right? And, and we see very clearly from the scriptures, that's, that's part of how we've been made. We've been made for a community. But what most of us settle for is something less than that. At best, what we get is we get sort of a, a half version of acceptance, where, where people accept us for the version of ourselves that we present, because we're afraid if that we present all of ourselves, we'll be rejected. Take a look at this quote from, from Timothy Keller. He's one of my favorite authors, and, and I love the way that he captures this. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. But to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. But that's often what we settle for, isn't it? We, we settle for people accepting us, people loving us, without really knowing us. Because we're afraid of what will happen if people really did know us. Which is the second part. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. We hide things about ourselves because we're afraid that if people saw them, they wouldn't embrace us. They wouldn't accept us. That they would just outright reject us. And so what most of us settle for is the first part. We settle for this sort of half version, this watered-down existence where we are accepted, we are embraced, but we're not really known. We spend all of our times hiding, right? Which is why most of us are obsessed with things like this, like Instagram. Now, why do I bring up Instagram? Well, one is because it was in the title of my presentation. I'm sort of obligated. Um, two, I also figured, you know, maybe I could get a few more followers if I, if I show this. <laughs> no, I bring up Instagram because Instagram and, and really all of social media, I think for most of us, is one of the primary things that we use to hide. Now, I know it sounds maybe a little bit strange to say that we hide with something that actually is incredibly invasive. But, but think about, well, actually, just take a look at, at what I have here on my Instagram profile, right? I have a few things in, in my little bio here, right? Baptized, husband, father, pastor, sneakerhead, coffee enthusiast, right? And so that is sort of select things that I want you to know about me. And then all of the posts, the pictures that I put on Instagram, they kind of follow suit. They're the parts of my life that I want you to see. This is the version of myself that I want the world to accept me for. But you know what I can promise you I've never once done? 
I've never stopped in the middle of an argument with my wife, taken a selfie, and said, hashtag blessed. And you know what you don't see on here? You don't see every single time that I lose my cool because my daughter won't go to bed when I told her or pick up her toys when I told her or get dressed so we can get, to the, get out of the house on time. I get to edit all of those things out of my life on here. And so what I get to present of myself here is is the thing that I want you to see, but there is so much that you don't see. That's all social media is. It is this virtual fig leaf that we use to cover up the unpleasant parts of our lives. Right. So the next time you see someone in a yoga pose up on a mountain... Or you see someone having a great time with incredibly beautiful people with some catchy quote as a, as a uh, descriptor of it. Keep in mind that that is at best a half version of their lives. That is at best a half truth. Because they're not making the post about the hurt that they feel after a breakup. They're not making the post about the messiness of their parents' marriage or the divorce that their parents just went through. They're not posting about the failed test, the college rejection letter, all of the unpleasant things going on in their lives. They are presenting a limited version that they want you to see. Just like you, just like me, when we're on here, we're hiding. We're not presenting the whole of ourselves. But here's the irony of of all of this. Is that most of us spend our time hiding because we think hiding will lead to acceptance. When really what we need is the opposite. Because hiding doesn't lead to real, true acceptance. It doesn't lead to real, true love. What we really long for, in a certain sense, is to be back in the garden. Strangely, what it is that we long for is to be naked again. I'm not talking about taking all of our clothes off. People do that for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes it's, it's for money. Sometimes it's because they think that by doing so, they'll get that acceptance that they long for, or that by doing so with another person, they'll find wholeness through that. No, what I'm talking about is to be seen and to be known Have you ever actually experienced that? Have you ever actually been naked with someone? In the sense where they see you for who you really are, that they know every part of you, every failure, every inadequacy, every fear, everything you're ashamed of, and they look at that and they say, I accept you. I love you. How many of us have actually experienced that? A researcher by the name of of Brene Brown, you've maybe heard the name before. Uh, In one of her books, it's it's called Rising Strong. She she sort of lays out her thesis uh, for that book and and that research uh, with, with these words. She says, I believe that vulnerability, the willingness to show up and be seen with no guarantee of outcome, is the only path to more love belonging, and joy. Vulnerability, the willingness to show up 
and be seen. The way to discover more love, more acceptance, more human connection, more wholeness is not by hiding parts of ourselves, but by the willingness to be vulnerable, the willingness to be open. But we also recognize that's risky, isn't it? Because when we do this, there is still a very real risk of being rejected. A very real risk that people will see things and say, eh, no thank you, maybe go do that over there. And so what most of us end up doing is hiding, running, covering ourselves up, or maybe doing what I did and, and growing a stupid mustache. And, and unfortunately, one of the, the lies that we've bought into is that the church is, is perhaps the last place that we can have this the last place that we could ever actually be open and honest about who we are. And and unfortunately, I have to admit that I've probably made mistakes, and and many Christian leaders have been made made mistakes, and we've communicated that the church is a place where you can't do that. But take a minute to listen and hear what the scriptures actually have to say about how our God deals with those parts of ourselves that we want to hide. Listen to what God does immediately after Adam and Eve fall into sin. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to them and said to them, where are you? What is the first thing that God does when Adam and Eve run and try to hide what they've done? He goes looking for them. He searches after what was lost. Yes, we do see there are very real consequences for sin. And God gets angry at what they have done to creation. He gets angry at their disobedience. And we see that those consequences, what those really amount to, are the consequences of humanity trying to live without God, live from themselves, live and try to be God on their own. But God is not merely an impartial judge because we see even in the consequences, there's a promise There's a promise that God wants to undo this. A a promise that he's going to make things whole again. A promise that that shame that they feel is one day going to be taken away. Or listen later, this comes from right before the flood. This is, is one of actually my favorite verses that we see in all of scripture. Genesis 6 Verses 5 and 6, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Humanity's sin, our shame that it brings, it grieves God, it pains him. 
It hurts him to see us wander off and try to live on our own, to wander off into sin and into harm's way. It hurts God. And that curse that falls on creation, it ends up ultimately falling not on us but on him. That's why he sends his son. He sends his son to bear the sin of the entire world so that our shame would be taken away and so that we could come before God and we could be open again. We could be vulnerable again. We could come before him and not have to hide anything about ourselves. That's the invitation that the gospel gives us, that you and I can be naked and open before God once again, that he sees us as we are and he still loves us. He still accepts us. He still embraces us. He sends his son because he's not merely an impartial judge. He's a loving father who wants his children to come home. I want to actually return to that quote from, from Timothy Keller because he doesn't end where I left off before. He says this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. To be fully known and truly loved, that's what it is to be loved by God. You have a God who sees you and knows you and he still embraces you, every part of you. The things you don't want anyone to see, the things that you spend all of your time trying to hide, God sees it, he knows it, and he still says, I love you, you are mine. And that kind of love is incredibly freeing, isn't it? Right? He says, it liberates us from pretense. It means we don't have to come before God and try to be something we're not. I kind of love it. It's humbling because we recognize that's something we could never earn for ourselves. But not only that, that kind of love, it strengthens us. It strengthens us to, to be the people who he's called us to be. It strengthens us to, to leave behind all of that stuff that has enslaved us. Do you know, this is actually the purpose of confession. Well, one of the main reasons confession that is a part of our worship all the time, it's not like I thought it was when I was growing up. I thought confession was always just, like, I guess I'm supposed to always feel really bad about myself. But what confession really is, it is an invitation to receive grace. It is an invitation to come before God to be open and honest about who we are, to come before him without pretense, without acting, without hiding, without covering anything up. An invitation to come before him and take off the fig leaf, shave off the mustache, delete the Instagram digital versions we've presented about ourselves and be seen who, who, for who we really are. 
with the promise that he will still love us, the promise that he will forgive us, the promise that he will make us new. That's what confession is about. It's about the promise that our God knows us and still loves us. And the promise of that love, that love changes us. 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 to 19. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. God does not say to us, change, hide, and then maybe I'll love you. No, what God says to us is, I love you. And the promise of that love changes us. It frees us. It makes us new again. God loves us no matter what. No matter how many times you mess up. No matter how broken you are, you don't have to hide when you come before God because you already have the promise in Jesus that he loves you, he forgives you, he embraces you no matter what. And that love sets you free to be his people in this world. It sets you free to love, to embrace, to accept as you have been loved and embraced and accepted. We started uh, this session uh, with a poem uh, from one of my, my best friends, Tanner. And, and so what I would like to do is, is actually close um, with a poem from, from one of my favorite authors. Uh, this is a poem from, from a man by the name of, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You may uh, be familiar with who he is. Uh, Bonhoeffer uh, wrote uh, during the, the Nazi regime and actually vehemently opposed uh, Adolf Hitler and, and his reign. And, and he was imprisoned and, and killed uh, for, for his commitment uh, to be faithful uh, to the gospel and, and impose the, the evils of, of the Nazi regime. And so uh, this poem actually comes from, from his book, Letters and Papers from Prison, and it's simply called, Who Am I? Who am I? They often tell me. I would step from my cell's confinement. Calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me. I would walk, I would talk to my warders freely and friendly and clearly, as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me. I would bear the days of misfortune, equably, smiling, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I really all that which other men tell of? Or am I only that what I know of myself? 
restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though his hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, trembling with anger at despotisms and petty humiliation, tossing an expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a, contempt, a contemptibly woe-begone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest O oh God, I am thine. You are not your failures. You are not your accomplishments. You are not your brokenness, your inadequacies, your weakness. You are not that secret thing that you're ashamed of and no one else knows about. But what you are, quite simply, because of Jesus, you are what God says you are. And what God says is you are mine.